This is Duke University. It is really my genuine pleasure today to introduce uh, Marshall Phelps, who is, uh, in fact, a, a new, new colleague of ours, uh, past, uh, what, year and a half or so at, at, at Duke. And though he, he, does, he does have a day job uh, as well, and in that capacity, he serves as Corporate Vice President for Intellectual Property and Policy, Intellectual Property Policy and Strategy at Microsoft. And he is, in fact, executive in residence uh, when he's in town at, uh, at Fuqua, which is uh, in, indeed more often than we ever hoped for, which is great. And he is uh, working very closely uh, and helping to really form our new Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation here at, um, at Duke. And for those of you who don't know, and I suspect that many of you already do, Marshall is already, he's a, a legend in the world of um, the management of intellectual property. He's long been a pioneer in uh, uh, its strategic management. He spent the first 28 years or so of his uh, uh, corporate career at, at IBM, uh, where he served as um, vice president, among other things, for intellectual property and, and licensing. And he was actually responsible for crafting and executing the most successful patent and IP broadly licensing program in history, period. Uh, and indeed, that legacy uh, continues. And he, in fact, uh, was key to revolutionizing the management of intellectual property throughout the information technology sector. Then he uh, went off and uh, spent about three years or so uh, in the world of uh, venture capital and startups. And he, he also brings that with him to his, uh, uh, to his uh, status here at Duke, which is terrific. Uh, someone who bridges these worlds of startups and uh, large uh, uh, corporations. And uh, then after working with VCs, he uh, joined Microsoft and He's now also with us, and with that, I'm really genuinely delighted to introduce Marshall. Thank you very much, Marshall. I'm not really sure what to expect. Peggy dropped four bottles of milk on the thing. <laughs> somehow think was an attempt to make sure I spent the speech time in the men's room. Thanks anyway, Peggy. <laughs> yeah, one will do. Um, thanks, Wes. That was very nice. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here today. Uh, frankly, uh, it is the second in a row uh, of these things. Last year, we sort of did IP 101. That's the way I, I kind of look at it. Is what is this beast we're even talking about? This one is a, is a little bit different. It said, okay, now that we all know what it is, you know, it's the old joke about the dog chasing the car down the street and you catch the car, what the hell are you gonna do with it? And so now this is an attempt to answer what are we gonna do with it? Uh, and I, I must tell you the, uh, the sum of all that is we don't know. Uh, the sum of all that is that this is about the most imperfect Economists love this stuff. It's about the most imperfect market you're ever going to find. And there are a bunch of people here today who would like to see if we could do something about that and make it, make it even better. It's an area that has basically been, I haven't even started the speech yet, but basically been a one-to-one a, a, a -one situation in, in, in the world and still largely is. Um, there is a dearth or absence of an anonymous largely an anonymous market like a stock exchange or something like that where you, could, where you can go buy this stuff. And there's an awful lot of reasons for that. And we'll get into that and, uh, and why, it's, why it's important. So anyway, we're going to talk about uh, the business and the social implications, quite frankly. And you heard the dean talk a little bit about that, of, of new markets for, uh, for technology that have begun to emerge in recent years. And, uh, and the opportunities uh, these uh, markets offer uh, that go far beyond simply growing companies or the ability to more um, efficiently buy and sell knowledge assets uh, or speed commercialization of new products and services. 
Um, if fate works in our favor, such markets might lead, uh, frankly, to vast increases in social wealth and the quantitative improvement in living standards for broad masses of people. That's what Blair was talking about, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a, serious, uh, it's a serious opportunity and a serious topic. Um, but we know it's possible because in our own history, uh, one technology market played a center stage role in the great economic success of the uh, United States. And I'm referring to the, uh, something I'm going to call today the independent inventors market, which in the 19th and 20th century, at least the early 20th century, was the driving force of uh, our unprecedented industrial growth. Now today, while the independent inventor remains a much-loved, iconic figure, symbolizing the best of Yankee ingenuity, frontier problem-solving and driving gold spikes in railroads and all that stuff, uh, it has been, the independent inventor has been largely marginalized, quite frankly, uh, as a major force in, in American industrial development um, by the predominance of in-house uh, R&D. Now, I should say, I'm a big fan of in-house R&D. I've worked for the two companies that spend more on in-house R&D than anybody else in the world. I think IBM is spending almost $6 billion and Microsoft is spending somewhere between 6 and $8 billion, depending on what year you want to talk about on, on R&D every year. So there's still a lot of that stuff going on. But Bell Labs has fallen by the wayside. And, 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 and quite frankly, if you, if you look at a few things that are, uh, that are happening in there, uh, a nice little recession does a lot to inhibit spending a lot of money on, on internal R&D. It's one of the easiest things to cut back on. And you're starting to see a lot. But there are forces at work right now, which in some of our country's preeminent economic, uh, uh, to, according to some of our preeminent economic researchers, and you're going to hear from them today, um, are starting to reverse this Schumpterian decline of the independent inventor and lead to the rebirth, albeit in new form, of a technology market which could one again, uh, once again play a, a powerful role in national innovation. Uh, to appreciate what such a market might mean for American competitiveness and economic growth, we have to go back to the future, as it were, and examine the effect it once had on America's uh, rise to global economic uh, su supremacy. Now, although most people don't rec realize it, uh, at least people outside this room, um, America's founding fathers very deliberately set out to construct a patent system that would stimulate the inventive genius of the common man. Their deeply held democratic ideals uh, led them to reject the elitism of the British patent system, which charged exorbitant patent fees equal to 10 times the annual per capita income of its citizens. So they reduced US patent fees. Some of you will find this ironic, given where they are today. But they reduced US patent fees to a level that even ordinary workers and farmers could afford. They also simplified traditional administrative procedures. And through other means as well, including allowing anyone applying for a patent in those days to do so by mail, uh, uh, postage free, uh, they created a patent system that encouraged innovation on a mass scale. The results were immediate and dramatic. As Thomas Jefferson put it, the new American patent system has, quote, given a spring to invention beyond my conception, unquote. In fact, only 13 years after the first patent law was enacted by Congress in 1793, the United States already surpassed Britain, the undisputed leader of the Industrial Revolution, in the number of new inventions patented. <clears throat> By 1860, the number of new inventions patented in the US was an astounding seven times the number of Great Britain. The principal reason for this dramatic surge in American innovation was that, the, <clears throat> that by design, the American patent system encouraged and enabled a much broader range of creative individuals to take part in the inventive activity than was the case in Britain or other old world countries. Whereas most of Britain's handful of inventors came from privileged backgrounds, obviously because of the cost of the system, <clears throat> the vast majority of Americans, many thousands of inventors, came from humble beginnings. They were farmers, factory workers, carpenters, and other artisans. Indeed, of the 160 so-called great inventors of the 19th century, over 70% had only a primary or secondary school education. Half had little or no formal education, and many of America's most famous names of invention, such as Matthias Baldwin, who invented the locomotive, or George Eastman, 
rolled film or Elias Howe, the sewing machine, or even Thomas Edison, the electric light and the phonograph, had to quit school at early ages to support their families. What's interesting here is that the American patent system did not simply encourage the masses to participate in invented activity, it made it economically feasible for them to do so by granting large numbers of inventors secure property rights to then their discoveries for a limited time. The patent system enabled the formation of a large and stable marketplace for technology, in which inventors could license their patents and thereby make full-time career out of innovation. Or as Abraham Lincoln, himself a patentee noted, the brilliance of the U.S. patent system was that it, quote, added the fuel of interest to the fire of genius, unquote. And that's how the world's very first national market for technology evolved. In it, independent inventors posted announcements of their patented discoveries in publications like Scientific American that were expressly founded for the purpose of disseminating <clears throat> information about this market. Companies would then license or purchase patented inventions from this inventor's market and use them in their own internal product development. Remember in those days the R&D departments of even the largest corporations bought, <clears throat> brought the vast majority of their product technologies from this independent inventor's technology market. As an example, in 1894 the forerunner of AT&T, American Bell Telephone Company, had, had <clears throat> licensed 73 patents from outside inventors and developed only 12 inside the company. This corporate focus on externally sourced innovation was the result of official corporate policy. As T.D. Lockwood, the head of American Bell's technology patent department wrote to the board of directors in 1885, and I quote, I'm convinced that it is never, it is now, and never will pay commercially to keep an establishment of professional inventors in our employ, unquote. Interesting. Indeed, it wasn't until the 1920s or so that growing cost and complexity of technology, along with court rulings that finally allowed companies to enforce employment agreements that required employees to assign their inventions to the firm, or at least allow it, that companies began hiring large staffs of in-house inventors. But until then, it was really this independent inventor's technology market created by our democratized uh, patent system, more than any special Yankee ingenuity, of the American people that powered the industrial growth of the 19th century and made us the global economic superpower that we became in the 20th. Ironically, the growing cost, complexity, and diversity of technology that 75 years ago propelled the rise in in-house corporate R&D and marginalized independent inventors is today producing the opposite effect. As knowledge becomes ever more widely distributed and technology invention becomes increasingly fragmented and heterogeneous, an increasingly sh increasing share of national innovation is once again taking place outside the centralized R&D labs of large firms in networks of innovators, including small companies and independent inventors. Few, if any, companies today, even the largest ones, can hold all the process, excuse me, all the pieces of even their own product technology in their own hands anymore. I can tell you that that is true in the case of Microsoft, and that is true of IBM, and it is becoming true of even those most uh, uh, isolated of, of R&D uh, shops, the large pharma uh, institutions. And we don't just bring in technology anymore. Um, we have, if, if we look at Microsoft, uh, just as an example, um, which has the largest budget, certainly, of any, any software firm in the world. Um, as I said, six to eight billion. We spent, uh, we spent nearly 400 million a year uh, to bring in technology from outside firms and individuals and share our technology with others. And we don't just bring in technology. Uh, since 2003, uh, we signed, uh, we've done more than 475 technology collaboration licensing agreements with outside firms, large and small to accelerate the infusion of new innovation into the, into the IT ecosystem. We also created a group in my organization called IP Ventures. Uh, one of the uh, people responsible for that is here today. His name is Ken Lustig. I don't know, Ken, where are you? It's a guy with his hand raised. If you have any questions, especially tough ones, ask him. 
Um, I don't deal with tough questions. Uh, anyway, it, it, it's, it's a program to put the technologies developed by, largely by Microsoft Research into the hands of small startups and independent inventors in the US, Europe, and even Asia to spark new innovation and stimulate local economic development. I think in the last couple of years, they've started seven brand new companies, uh, and they've hived off about 15 different technologies to existing uh, uh, companies uh, around the world. It's been extraordinarily su uh, extraordinary success, and, and, uh, and it's uh, something that's kind of unusual for, for uh, a large company to do. But quite frankly, if we didn't do it, and you spend that, those of you who know the research process know that it's sloppy, uh, it, it, and it should be. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's especially sloppy at Microsoft, where uh, most of the researchers are kind of allowed to research whatever they want to research. Uh, Google does the same kind of thing. Well, a lot of things are going to come out of that, I know you'll find this hard to believe, that don't find their way into Windows. Um, uh, <laughs> think about that for a minute. Um, one classic example, uh, which I like to use, uh, those of you who have a, a Garmin in your car or uh, one of those kinds of uh, devices that tell you where you're going, uh, the next generation of those is actually predictive traffic software. So instead of just telling you how to get from a, point A to point B, it will also say, if you go down that road today, understand that right now schools are out. And so it will deflect you to another way to get where you want to be uh, in a more timely fashion than otherwise. Well, that's software that Microsoft developed that it wasn't going to end up in Windows or much less Office. Well, once you get beyond those two things, unless it fits in an Xbox, there's no, there's no point in it. So uh, uh, we, uh, we have formed this unit to take things like that and hive them out off the company and create a business around them. Today, the company that uh, uh, represents or sells that software is a company named Inrix, which now has about 300 employees. And it's, an, it's an amazing success in a couple of years. Uh, so it's, it's, it's things like that that Ken and his group uh, uh, are always patrolling to find. We found out that if you just listed a bunch of technologies on your website that said, this is available, come and get it, nobody came. Uh, we discovered that if we wanted to form businesses around these technologies, we had to do it all, soup to nuts. We had to find a board of directors. We had to find VC funding. We had to put a corporate structure in place. We had to get the propeller heads who invented the stuff to want to go with the business, which is actually easier than you might think because that technology is their children, and they, and, they, and they want to see their children grow up, and they know that it isn't going to make it into Windows, so they're kind of happy to do it. Uh, but it's that kind of stuff that we had to do. Uh, some of that learning... I'm off the track here, but some of that learning is going to be quite relevant to what we're trying to do here with Duke. If we can take some of the technologies, as Blair talked about, that come out of the medical school, for example, uh, wrap some VC money around that, maybe some university around that, get the business students to work on the business cases, get the law students to paper it over. Uh, uh, we might create an ecosystem that, uh, that will be uh, helpful going forward in all those things. But anyway, the bottom line is the pace of innovation today is just... Uh, is too rapid, the competition for markets and customers uh, too multifaceted and demanding for any one firm to go it alone, which is the other side of the equation, which is what Microsoft is finding. In an age where inventions build upon each other with the rapidity as to render obsolete even the most far-sighted product development strategy, uh, firms are discovering they simply must collaborate with others if they want to survive and prosper in an increasingly de decentralized and multipolar technology world. So it's not just the, the, the situation where we're taking technologies and throwing it out, we're also pulling, pulling them in. Uh, and if you had to put kind of four words about it, collaboration has become an imperative. Uh, now as goods and, and factor markets have become more efficient and accessible, expanding to reach every corner of the globe, the domains in which competitive advantage can be built have correspondingly narrowed. After all, only that which is unique to you and not accessible to your competitors, your knowledge, your skills, your technology, and nowadays your ability to assimilate the strengths and capabilities of allied firms offers you ground upon which you can differentiate yourself in business. And this differentiation is embodied in intellectual property, which is the only sustainable source of competitive advantage in today's open innovation world and the best 
<clears throat> vehicle for building collaborative relationships. Open innovation itself would literally be impossible without intellectual property, which provides, a, think of it as a legal scaffolding upon which firms can share their innovative research and partner together to create new products and services. Without strong and clear IP rights, firms would resist sharing their ideas for fear that comp competitor, competitors would steal their innovations. But with such rights, firms can share their discoveries with each other, securing the knowledge most time uh, that each is protected uh, in deploying them to their mutual advantage. Just as good fences make good neighbors, strong IP makes for, for strong and successful open innovation collaborations. And in today's world, IP, <clears throat> the IP so-called fence is actually more of a bridge uh, to collaboration than a barrier between companies. That's a big change, by the way. And it's a change that uh, if you scratch nine out of 10 CEOs, they wouldn't understand. Uh, quite frankly. Uh, that's because IP management in most companies uh, is, a, uh, is unaccounted for. It doesn't show up on a balance sheet. Uh, Mark Heller uh, of Price Waterhouse is here. We were talking about this this morning. Uh, it's donated to the legal department, and the legal department is kind of given the charter, you go figure out what you want to do with this kind of stuff. So very few companies have management systems in place to optimize the, uh, the, the, the results of, of R&D and this open innovation thing we're talking about. So, net of this is that it opens a very large door to independent inventors. Could today's new trend of open innovation combined with the emergence of the internet uh, provide a global platform for knowledge exchange, give birth once again to an independent inventor's technology market, albeit a new form? And could that be a major force in U.S. innovation going forward? It's too soon to tell, but there are interesting trends out there worth watching. Uh, this afternoon, somewhere around 3 o'clock, hopefully, if the planes are on time, uh, Linda Sanford will be talking to you uh, about this. She wrote a great article in Business Week recently uh, in which she said that these trends have, and I quote, created a platform where intellectual capital can for the first time be delivered from anywhere. These forces, she says, have leveled the playing field, giving companies and individuals, let me repeat that, and individuals, uh, new, <clears throat> new power to compete globally, unquote. She illustrates her point with the example of Eli Lilly. Those of you who were here last year will remember a colorful character by the name of Bob Armitage, who's their general counsel, who has kind of strong opinions about things. Um, uh, but they have set up a web-based uh, inocentive, uh, is their word, program under which a virtual talent pool of more than 50,000 scientists in 150 countries tackles various R&D problems that they post on, uh, on the web that fall within their field of expertise. According to Linda, the success rate has been far higher than in-house performance at about one-sixth the cost. Probably not comfortable to be a researcher there right now. Now, this information is two years old, so perhaps Linda will update us uh, with more recent data this afternoon. Eli Lilly, Procter & Gamble, and another, a number of other firms have begun working not only with outside companies, but also with networks of individuals to share and exchange knowledge assets and develop technology and new products. So here's the $64,000 question, or the 64 $640 billion question, that's, that's what annual innovation is worth. When does a network become a market? When do networks of individuals become markets for independent inventors? I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that question, at least not yet, but we can speculate about some of the conditions that will have to be met for a viable independent inventors market to be born or reborn. One thing we'll need is greater transparency trust and, ex and ex expertise. Consider, for example, that right now, if my global friend uh, uh, Kato-san, uh, the IP chief of Fujitsu, were to call me and suggest that Microsoft might be interested in a package of technology or patents that they might have, there is a certain amount of trust already built into my expectations of Fujitsu. I can be pretty sure that the technology is relevant and that's going to work and that the patents protecting it are sound and likely to withstand invalidity claims. Well, let's fast forward to Boise, Idaho, and 
John Q. Citizen calls me to suggest that Microsoft might want to look at some technology that individual has patented and wants to license. Well, there isn't the same level of background understanding and trust and transparency built into that equation. Surely we could take the time and, and expense to put some lawyers and technologists uh, on the case to examine it, and, and, and sometimes we do. But really, there are only so many hours in the day, and those hours have historically always been better spent with the Fujitsu's of the world than some guy from Boise. Plus, how is Mr. Citizen from Boise even going to get through the switch, switchboard to get a hold of me, to be perfectly frank about this? Uh, this is the big company problem. Those of you who've dealt with a big company know what this is. It's, it's like dealing with a black hole. And there's also the not insignificant problem that most firms have strong incentives, uh, if not outright policies, against accepting unsolicited technology queries from unknown entities, lest they run the risk of an infringement suit down the road, which carries with it treble damages and a lifetime spent in the Eastern District and Federal Court in Texas. At Microsoft, we, we spend $100 million a year defending ourselves, just the process of defending ourselves from patent infringement lawsuits. That does not have to, anything to do with judgments that might be rendered one way or the other. 100 million bucks a year. We have 50 lawsuits at any given time, 49 of which are in the Eastern District of Texas. I'll leave it to you to figure out why that might be. Um, so how do we get around this problem? Perhaps there will be need to emerge some sort of a trusted intermediary between the independent inventor community and the corporate world before that community can become a real market. Uh, you'll hear some of that from some people who are trying to do this. Next comes the question of evaluation. Because intellectual assets are not the stuff you buy on eBay, nor are they like real estate assets, assets where you have some knowledge of local market conditions and comps, so you can make a reasonably, well, you used to be able to, make a reasonably intelligent determination of what they're worth. That was before we smart people created secondary markets and the paper behind this stuff. Intellectual assets are incredibly complex, perhaps the most complex asset class in existence. They require a high degree of expertise to understand and value. And any of those of you who've spent time reading claims and patent, uh, in the patent world know that that's got to be the case. Now, it's true that sometimes IP executives like to talk about comps. The licensing people at one firm will say, well, here's my IP coal pile, and I've got some diamonds in it. Of course, the other side will say, oh, yeah? Well, my coal pile is bigger than yours, and mine has the hope diamond in it. Both sides like to pretend that the value of their IP is determined by what the seller has got. But in reality, it's what the buyer wants to use it for that really matters how he'll deploy it, to what end, for, how, for what time period, in what specific market or markets, and what degree of exclusivity uh, <clears throat> determine uh, the revenue streams, and then maybe that'll tell you what it's worth, maybe. And then for the seller, as the developer of the technology, who knows it better than anywhere, anyone else, has got to help the buyer achieve the buyer's objective. That's why you can't really call this uh, sales, per se, because it's not a static product that you're offering, but it's often a collaboration. You've got to understand the licensee's business, their business model, and then become the licensee's partner. Technology advisor, marketing expert, even executive coach, all in order to create a true win-win situation that structures the deal in the most mutually advantageous manner. So how do you create a market out of so-called goods that require such a high degree of collaboration, expertise, transparency, and trust? I'm not sure. But again, the answer may lie in intermediaries who can take the network of independent inventors and make of it a trusted market where firms can purchase technology, uh, technology efficiently and with a reasonable, a reasonable minimum of friction. From the corporate side of the equation, as potential buyers of technology, of independent inventors' technology, anyway. Additional questions must be answered. Because, again, any technology bought, <clears throat> brought, excuse me, or licensed in a market is not a static product, but a work in process. If Microsoft were to license John Q. Citizens of Boise's technology in some form, 
of reborn independent in, in a reborn independence market, independent market, we might want this collaboration to continue to develop technology or a product or a line of business. We would need to change our management systems to include Mr. Citizen and others like him in our information exchange, our product development staff meetings, and of course also our marketing meetings to ensure that the features customers want uh, will be built into the technology and the product. I can tell you right now that that is a rare event when that happens. We would need to give that John Q. Citizen access to other intellectual property of ours related to the project and make sure this IP is protected and used properly. And we would need to structure our agreements with Mr. Citizen to ensure that the, <clears throat> the ownership of all the IP in question, his, ours, and the IP jointly developed is properly handled. In short, we would need the same dynamic relationship with John Q. Citizen, independent inventor, that we <clears throat> are just now learning to create with a $45 billion company like Fujitsu to co-develop some new technology. All of which is simply to say that I'm hardly a Pollyanna about the challenges confronting the development of any new market for technology, let alone the rebirth in some form of the incredible independent inventors market that once powered America's industrial growth. But I am optimistic that such markets will develop in time, even if we can't yet discern all of its contours. For one thing, I've been in business long enough that I can see the trajectory of technology markets uh, where the trajectory is aiming. I remember, quote unquote, the earliest days of the AT&T IBM consent decrees in 1956, when technology sharing first began to slowly evolve from a scattered one-off affair into an embryonic licensing market, a new class of professionals emerged called licensing executives. Then there were the patent wars of the 1980s, when uh, cases like the Kodak infringement suit proved that patents could be worth millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. That evolved into a licensing explosion in the 90s, when firms like IBM demonstrated in pretty dramatic fashion that patented technology could be a highly profitable business in its own right. And now we're entering a new era in which intellectual property in the technology market is liberating firms from their siloed innovation boundaries and becoming a seedbed for intra-firm collaboration and knowledge exchange. In short, I'm optimistic that new technology markets, including perhaps a revitalized independent inventors market, will develop in time. Because the logic of open innovation's new collaborative impairment, uh, Im imperative demands that they develop. So I'm going to leave the development of those markets to our expert panels to explore. And I'm going to kind of go through who we have on those panels, just so you all know. Uh, Ashish Arora, who's sitting right down in front of me, is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Heinz School of Carnegie Mellon University. He can probably tell us more about how the center of gravity of innovation may be shifting outside of the centralized corporate R&D labs to more uh, uh, horizontal networks of innovators than anybody around here. Jeff Clark is here. Jeff Clark is the managing general partner of a, uh, of a venture fund here in, the, in this area, which has done so much to fuel and fund the formation of life sciences companies. Ian Cockburn is a professor of finance and economics, and the Everett W. Lord Distinguished Faculty, this is a long title, Distinguished Faculty Scholar in the School of Management at Boston University, and quite possibly knows more about the pharmaceutical any, uh, industry than anyone alive. Wes Cohen, Cohen who you've met, is the faculty director here at the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation and the Frederick C. George Professor of Business Administration at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. One thing I'm learning about acad academics is they really like long titles. <laughs> <laughs> My colleague Horacio Gutierrez of Microsoft is also here. He's the company's vice president and deputy general counsel of intellectual property and licensing. And when it comes to competition law and markets in Europe worldwide, he's probably the best. And he's a real gentleman in addition. Mark Heller is a partner in the advisory services group at PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of our sponsors, who heads up the economics and strategy practice. Uh, I'm hoping Mark will be able to offer some insights into the way firms may need to recalibrate their international, their internal organizations and practices to take advantage of the emerging new markets for technology I've been talking about. Jim Malakowski is here. I saw him somewhere. He's with us today. He is CEO of Intellectual Capital, 
uh, merchant bank, Ocean Tomo. Uh, he has been involved trying to create nascent markets for intellectual property, and he will talk to, uh, actually, an auction market for intellectual property, and I'm sure he'll talk to us about the, uh, uh, what that all means. I mentioned Linda, Linda Sanford. Uh, she's the senior vice president of IBM's Enterprise on Demand Transformation Program. Uh, she's also got one of these really, really long titles, but let me put it simply. She's the highest ranking female at IBM. Uh, Irving Wodowski-Berger uh, is here. Uh, for those who uh, don't get out much, uh, he's the chairman of emeritus of IBM's Academy of Technology. He is a technology evangelist, and he is uh, teaching uh, now uh, at MIT, and he'll have a lot to offer on these things. Lou Zaretsky, vice president of consulting services for the intellectual property firm Thinkfire. Thinkfire is also one of our sponsors. I suspect he can always get a bit more real when we discuss the challenges and impediments uh, in the emergence of new technology uh, uh, markets. Uh, Tony Tremontin, I'm probably not going to say that right, a principal in McKinsey and Company is here. Uh, Tony is a very interesting guy. Before joining McKinsey, he was an experimental neuroscientist uh, conducting neural stem cell research at Rockefeller University. Uh, it's an interesting career switch. I'm sure Tony will uh, be very, very interesting on that. Uh, Doug Shaw. Doug Shaw is CEO and president of Monotype Imaging. Uh, he's cornered the market on type fonts. For those of you who may not know, there is even a market for type fonts. There actually is. And uh, he has a very interesting uh, business model that is related to licensing all of that stuff worldwide. It's not just a patent situation. It's a trademark and trade secret one as well. Bob Tabor uh, from Duke is their vice Cha uh, chancellor for corporate and venture development at the Duke University Medical Center. And, and Bob specializes in, uh, in the area, obviously, of, of, of uh, uh, big pharma and, uh, and, and, and medical devices and those kinds of things. So that's our group today. Uh, we're going to start off with the, uh, with the first panel, uh, which I'm going to uh, uh, try to herd the squirrels and uh, 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 run. And then uh, after that, we will probably have a break, I think, is what we do. Oh, after the Q&A, yeah, sure. Then we have a break, and then we'll do the first panel. So. I'm going to stop right there and uh, uh, answer any questions that anybody has or wants to talk about. So feel free. Yes, sir. Yeah, I totally agree with what you were saying about the, the small inventor market. And I uh, apologize in advance for raising a somewhat uncomfortable issue in the sense that it deals with the current legislation in the House and Senate regarding yep. patent reform. Yep. IBM and Microsoft, in terms that you're well acquainted with, are currently lobbying aggressively to make it more difficult to, well, I guess you could fairly characterize it as making it more difficult for people to enforce and prosecute patents. And um, because of that, um, I think it's I think it's important to, to realize that that will affect the individual inventors that you were discussing earlier. And I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that. Sure. <laughs> I, I don't think that is the, uh, the intent, is to make it necessarily more difficult for small and independent inventors to enforce their patent rights. Uh, I would personally argue that the system has gotten a little bit skewed in one direction, uh, largely because of a phenomenon I will call the deep pocket theory of justice. If you're in the technology world, uh, and you've got a multifaceted product like Windows or IBM mainframe or even an IBM designed and architected uh, laptop computer, there are literally inside those things thousands upon thousands of inventions, most of them patented by somebody. Uh, if you have an argument that one of your inventions somehow is inside one of those products, uh, you have the ability uh, to sue a Microsoft or an IBM for literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Because what you do is you, you say, well, to the jury, uh, look, this is, we're only looking here for 75 cents, ladies and gentlemen of the 
jury. That product sells for $90, 75 cents. What difference does that make? Well, it's 75 times how many billions of copies. Uh, and don't think that that hasn't, uh, uh, that thought hasn't occurred to the trial lawyers of the, uh, of the world. And occasionally they get into very friendly fora, which I would say the Eastern District of Texas is one. And we, uh, there's a reason that 49 of our 50 lawsuits happen to be there. And so the system can get unbalanced over time. Uh, you can argue about the details of the, of the patent reform legislation that's in front of Congress, and we could have a good debate about that. But really, it's just kind of meant to get the system back, I would say, uh, in, into a little more equilibrium than is there today. It is often argued that the big companies have all the everything going for him, and the small inventor who gets screwed in the system, I would argue that it's the, and John Fjeld and I argue this all the time, I would argue that the balance of terror is the other way around. Uh, that if I, uh, I look at a little company like Stack Electronics, S-T-A-C, which went and bought a couple of patents from the U.S. government, turned around and sued Microsoft for a compression algorithm that was in those patents that had found it, somehow found its way into Windows. Uh, they, they got an award of $125 million. Uh, from Microsoft. First, they didn't do, they were kind of the first patent trolls in a sense. Uh, and I would argue that in that kind of a situation, if it wasn't for the, the patent system, a, a company like Stack would never have been heard from. Uh, so, you know, it's a balancing act. You, 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 want, you, you don't want to discourage the small inventors at all. In fact, I'm a great fan of them, which is why I, some of those words I, I, I spoke about. On the other hand, you don't want to be held hostage either. In, in, in a patent system. So you, over time, you have to find the right balance. I would also argue that the US patent system has gotten skewed in a lot of ways over time, uh, and it's had to adjust itself. Uh, this is just one of those adjustments. I, I'm not sure in an election year that you have a whole lot to worry about. Uh, in, you know, they've got baseball hearings to hold, and, uh, <laughs> and really serious affairs of state so I don't know <laughs> where that's going to go. Irving. Yeah, uh, let me comment. Berger, by the way, who's uh, uh, of IBM and MIT fame and who's going to speak to you later. Yeah, let me just comment as somebody who knows a hell of a lot more about baseball than IP. Uh, <laughs> let me comment. If you believe that, you've got a real problem. <laughs> well, I like the Red Sox, but, but, but I'm a New York Mets fan. But I like the Red Sox also. <laughs> but let me comment how we've seen this issue within IBM. And it's a question of sort of asymmetry in the sense that if you have a business that is a going business, and if they act in, let me say, a nefarious way, their markets will, will not be happy with them, and then they sue another business, that's a symmetric relationship because the invisible hand will keep everybody on best behavior. I mean, and you see that with IBM and Microsoft, yeah. even though we have often disagreed on really tough issues, our customers would be so upset if we took actions that they felt were really bad for them, that, 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 that we would pay many times over. Right. The concern is that if you are an individual or a business that has nothing to lose, that you can do the equivalent of take an injunction against somebody and if you win, you get 25 million, and if you lose, you go bankrupt, or you do whatever, and start all over again, something isn't quite right. And, and the question is, what's the right way to handle those asymmetric relationships in the interest of society? That, that's the way we've thought about it, and I don't have an answer, but Blackmail is not a good thing. And a number of actions with people who didn't invent something, that, that's even adding insult to injury, 
They just bought it and they are out digging for gold. It's hard to, to weep about the widows and children for this person. I mean, this is not the, 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 the farmer who invented something. You know, this is somebody who's trying to get rich through a windfall. And I don't know why I should worry about that person. This is, of course, the great, my friend Peter Detkin, who was then vice president of Intel, came up with the great term patent troll, which he probably regrets. But uh, uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is that problem. It is somebody who goes out and buys a piece of intellectual property and then basically uh, holds uh, the commercial entities a bit of a hostage. And by the way, the plaintiff's trial bar has figured this out. The reason the Eastern District of Texas is so popular is because that's where all the asbestos lawyers used to be, and uh, those who sued the drug companies. And they've just switched over to this form of intellectual property right now. And these cases are most large, largely contingency fee-based uh, uh, cases, and uh, if you're a large defendant, you are very much exposed to that, which is part of the reason that you asked your question, kind of what, what's going on in the world. I will say there is one trend that is going on that I agree with Irving on, and that is that uh, along with this open innovation stuff is becoming clear uh, to the Microsofts and the IBMs of the world that there is a form of collaboration that is required because, quite frankly, their customers are really tired of, of, uh, of, trying, of companies trying to assert technological hegemony over their uh, uh, IT world going forward. I mean, it is clear that IT uh, stuff and has inflicted themselves completely inside the DNA of almost every company in the world. And they really are annoyed when somebody says, well, you, it's either my way or the highway, when they're the customer at the end of the day. Uh, it started with the biggest customers, the financial services industry, in, 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 uh, largely in New York, but now worldwide, where they say, we've had enough of this. We want our products to all work together. Well, they can't work together unless there is some form of shared uh, uh, risk if you put it that way, and shared knowledge exchange between the producers of those things. So whether it's an open source software, or whether it's Microsoft software, or it's an IBM mainframe, or it's IBM's proprietary mainframe software, you can go down, the, and I'm not picking on just IBM and Microsoft, Oracle and Adobe and all those other companies are involved in this. This stuff all has to work together, and the markets will not tolerate it anymore otherwise. Wes. I have uh, two questions uh, building on the discussion. First, building on the initial question. Putting aside uh, you know, notions of, of uh, balance of terror, et cetera, wouldn't you agree, reflecting the uh, questioner's earlier point, that perhaps uh, uh, much less so in life sciences, but in, in other sectors, that independent inventors and uh, uh, startups, et cetera, are disadvantaged, OK, in, in the sorts of asymmetric relationships uh, in terms of access to, to the finance that they need to get the legal assistance and so on and so forth. And that moreover, somehow that needs to be addressed either on the part of management or, or other authorities to try to, uh, to, to really uh, foster the uh, uh, viability of these sorts of transactions and markets. And that gets back to the point that Irving kicked off, uh, uh, which is, well, what about these guys who just buy IP, didn't invent, and then go out and, you know, uh, behave badly? Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's certainly true, and, and abuses of that sort are true. But is it? Let's flip that around. Isn't there a role, particularly if we're thinking of, of, uh, of encouraging the growth of these markets, of brokerage, right? Of intermediaries. Now, I'm sure all folks who are even abusing the system will say, I am merely a broker and an intermediary. So there's, a, there's certainly a line that can be, can be crossed. And then the question is, is what, what, what do you need to make that function be a constructive one, okay, that actually does uh, 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 foster the growth of these markets and the kind of division of labor uh, 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 economically that will foster economic growth broadly? So, 
Uh, that's right, we will. So let's not go into too much detail, stealing our We thunder, want to kill the advertisement. Uh, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but so, the, the, so regarding uh, asymmetric power and that somehow that, that does need to be. Well, I, uh, I actually threat. think it's, uh, it goes back to something even more fundamental, Wes, and that is that uh, I think the patent system has become almost a caricature of itself. It's, it's complex. It's very difficult. It's expensive. Um, I, I personal, personal Marshall's personal opinion thinks we uh, think we ought to develop a patent system that encourages, like, like the beginning of that speech that I was just giving, that encourages and makes it easier for the small inventors to play the game. Uh, maybe they get a different cost break. Maybe the uh, large companies that uh, spend uh, a fortune filing 3,000 patents a year, which is basically what the top five do, uh, they are the true customers of the system. They live and die by it. But maybe we ought to have a two-tiered system. Maybe the uh, individual inventor ought to get a break into that system. We used to have, a, by the way, the patent office stopped it last year, where if you filed for a patent and you were over 65 years old, you got an accelerated process through the patent system. <laughs> Where's Blair? That's becoming important to more and more people in this room. Uh, they, but they, they stopped doing that for reasons that are, aren't clear to me. Uh, but, I, but I do think there is room in that system for, for that kind of uh, 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 an analysis to take place. I, I think it makes sense. Yes? I guess I have more of a question. And, and that is, it seems to me, I'm not a patent expert, but it seems to me that the patent uh, cost together is small compared to the cost of litigation. To, uh, withhold, you know, to validate and make sure that the patent stands. And so it's not necessarily the cost of entry, but it's more the cost of defending it. If you don't have the money to be able to defend, then why would you file the patent in the first place? And so can you just speak to the concept you're saying, let's make it easier for entry? That doesn't seem to me to be the major issue. Maybe I'm not up to date enough on the balance between those two things. Well, it actually is a major uh, and the reason is not just uh, the, the, the dollar cost of getting a patent. I gave you the figure for the United States, it's basically 25,000 bucks. If I want to protect myself in Europe, it's throw another 25 in there. If I want to defend myself in Asia, throw another 25 in there. And to make it worse, to make it worse, is what I would say is the latency problem. And that is if I file a patent today, in the software industry, it's likely five years before it's issued in the United States. In Japan, until recently, it was 14 years. Now, I defy you in the high-tech world to tell me that some patent I get today is going to be viable, or I file for today, is viable 14 years from now. Uh, technology changes so rapidly that it's an antique, generally speaking, in, in, in four or five years. So there is a front-end problem to that. The back-end problem is such, if I file one patent and I get it issued or whatever, I buy a patent or whatever, and I'm a small inventor, yeah, I mean, I got I to gotta, uh, be prepared to defend it or prosecute it some way around. There, there, there's no question about that. I will tell you that uh, at least on the ability to assert that thing, there is an entire trial lawyer's plaintiff's bar they're more than happy to take your case for nothing. On a, on, a, on a 20 to 25 percent, 30 percent contingency fee basis. Uh, and there are just we're way too many. I, how many people here from the law school? But there are an awful lot of, there are an awful lot of lawyers who uh, have turned that into more than a cottage industry. Let me put it that way. And so I'm a great believer that the balance of terror is on the side of the small inventor right now. Yes. I, I have a related question, but maybe, maybe we ought to identify ourselves so that everybody knows who. Oh. I'm Jeffrey Hill from Healthcare Business Associates here in the Triangle. Yeah. Uh, I have a related question, more from a uh, friendly collaborative perspective. Uh, and let's take a case where you're developing a product that you, ask, you have certain expectations of its revenue potential. Uh, certainly there will be more than one patent involved in that. You're seeking to license a patent in that is an important component of that. What's the current trend in or process for assigning a fair value or form of compensation for that particular patent holder uh, in their uh, participation in the, the future value of that product, knowing that there will be maybe a hundred different patents. 
it, 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 it's industry specific. Um, in in the healthcare industry, in the in the in the um, drug industry, big pharma, you have a much different phenomena than in the IT world. In that world, uh, it's largely driven by the invention of a molecule. The molecule is then patented, and then a product comes out the back end. There's kind of a one-to-one to one relationship there. Uh, that's the reason you see big pharma holding on to its patent position for dear life. And at the end of 20 years, make a blue pill out of a red pill and see if they can extend the patent a few more years. Um, and, that's, and that's the phenomena in that world. What's happening in that world, however, is that the front end costs of developing blockbuster drugs, which is what, what their business models are based upon, is becoming so difficult that you're seeing intellectual property transferred on the front end now more than you ever did before. So a company like Icos, which invented one of those ED drugs, uh, you've seen their ads, the people on the bath, in the bathtubs on top of the mountain, just like home, uh, you know, uh, having marvelous weekends and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Icos could invent a product, but never had the marketing muscle to market it. So they turned to Eli Lilly and formed a joint venture on the front end and transferred a lot of intellectual property uh, at, at that time. If I look at a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, it's built all around the world by different companies. So the fuselage is made in Italy, the wings are made by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries in Japan, and tail assembly is done by somebody else. And it's partially put together in South Carolina and flown in a weird looking converted 747 to Everett, Washington, and Boeing does the systems integration on the back end. That's all they do. They put the pieces together. Uh, you have to believe, we all have to hope, that an awful lot of intellectual property was shared between everybody <laughs> on, on the front end of that, because we're going to all be flying in those things, and you'd like to think the wings fit, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I would say, in, 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 in different to my world, the IT world, you're seeing a lot more IP traded on the front end. Now, how you value that, I don't know. If I asked ICOS what their, um, what their value was of the Eli Lilly relationship, they would tell me that it was huge. It was so huge that Eli Lilly went and bought the whole company at the end of the day uh, to, to put it together. But um, that's probably extreme on one side. Extreme on the other side, I can't tell you. Uh, and, and again, the value of IP is not so much in the beauty is in the eye of the seller. It's in the eye of the buyer. What does the buyer need? Uh, and what are they willing to pay for it is really what it comes down to. It's not a science. It's almost an art. Licensing and that in licensing and out licensing is an art. And it's not something that's easily taught. Uh, uh, there are some people who I could direct that to actually more pointedly who do that kind of work uh, day in and day out. And I will tell you that it isn't a science. And uh, it, 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 is, it is very much an art. I, can, I can't tell you a formula to do what you know, you, you're asking. I think some of the panel members will have a different view of that. Certainly Jeff Clark from a, 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 an entrepreneur's point of view, a venture capitalist point of view will have a different view than some of the people from the large companies like Irving and things like that. But we'll, we'll get into that. that that's a great question. So what, maybe what, one or two more, and then we've got to quit. What's your view of the value of process patents versus state of matter patents? In other words, uh, and that, that applies to the software industry as opposed to the pharmaceutical industry. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me answer that question. It's a great question. Um, my personal opinion, again, not Microsoft's or IBM's or anybody else's, is that the patent system has gotten skewed a little bit in favor of granting patents that maybe shouldn't have been granted in hindsight. One of the categories I would call business method patents, which are your, your, your view of, say, process patents, business method patents. I don't believe you should be able to process your patent your back office, quite frankly, which is what's going on here. So that things that existed in your back office, they, they put them on the web and they go file a patent and the patent's granted. State Street Bank was the first to, uh, to uh, case on, on that point. 
And the Court of uh, Appeals for the Federal Circuit, the CAFC, basically came down and said, look, you can't distinguish between technologies. Technologies are technologies, and business method patents are just as good as any others. Now, I personally think that that's poisoned the well for a group of patents called software patents. Quite, quite frankly, software patents have been around for 30 years, even in their own form. IBM was the first company that basically pushed the patent office to say, yeah, it's software, but it's just as patentable as anything else. And there was a case called In Ray Beauregard in 1983, which the US Patent Office allowed, and then the rest is history. Well, if you look at a software patent today, I defy you to tell me whether it's software or hardware in most cases. There is precious little that you can't do in software that you can do in hardware, and vice versa. The plug in the wall is the exception. You need some juice on the hardware side of the equation. But most patents are written such that you can't tell whether it's software or hardware. And where you get in trouble on that is when you get over to this business method thing, which I believe poisons the well uh, for that kind of an analysis. And so in Europe, uh, you can't get a patent for something called software as such, whatever the hell that means. It means something to the Europeans. It's never been clear to me what that means. But basically what it means is we don't allow software patents over here in this European situation. But of course they do, because everybody's getting patents anyway, because you can't tell the difference between whether it's software or hardware. And I get, I, my argument is it falls apart when you get to things like business methods. So that's my personal opinion. One more question? Yes, sir. There's a, there's a mic there for you, sir. Uh, Jerry Reichman, Law School. I had a question regarding the uh, intervention about uh, patent trolls. Uh, wondering if the people in this audience have any experience with uh, uh, or can uh, predict whether the eBay decision, which would result in more uh, royalties rather than injunctions, would uh, lessen some of the pressures coming from the patent troll problem. Okay, what, what, what is being talked about here is uh, the Supreme Court, having gone about 50 years from caring that patents even existed, has now taken, I think, five or six cases in the last six months, eight, nine months, which have basically had the effect of, uh, some would argue, uh, limiting plaintiffs' rights in the, or cutting down on the amount of damages, the frequency of injunctions. By the way, there's nothing that scares a large company like an IBM or a Microsoft than thinking that some judge somewhere in some district court is going to issue an injunction and stop the uh, next version of Windows from being released. That's a very real problem in almost every single case we face. That was the first thing that was asked for. Stop Microsoft from selling Vista, and by God, will the coffers ring at the law firm. And the Supreme Court has been working very hard to kind of limit those kinds of things. I would have thought that was true, what you just said. Axiomatically, you'd think that has to be the, the, the end result of all of this, except our number of lawsuits has gone up. And where last year it was 40, this year it's 50. Uh, so it's hard to prove it by me. Now, there are some others in the room who may have a different view of that. But I, I would like to believe that that's the case. And maybe it is. Maybe the number would have been 60. I, I, I can't prove it one way or the other. At least so far, though, the data are not helpful. Anybody want to comment on that or have a different view? A little bit, yes. The internal assessment of the risk. But I would have thought that that... The lack of the, the, uh, the reflexive injunction, I would say, the, the, taking the reflexive injunction away, has not necessarily slowed down the, uh, because at the end of the day, it's all about money. Yeah, you're, you're, I, I think you're right. That's right. That's right. Okay, Irving, last last comment, and then we gotta. Let me say something more to add fuel to the uh, <laughs> fire for our panels. You later. started this. Yeah. Whole troll thing, you know. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, let me tell you, just my view of software. 
you know, when, when you disclose an idea, you have to write it down. And writing down an idea in a natural language is really bad because natural languages are very imprecise. Some ideas can be written down with designs and diagrams, and that's a good language. Some with mathematics. Software is what we call a Turing language. It has the beauty that you can express just about anything in software. You can express really bad ideas that don't work, and you can express really wonderful creative innovations. So, so software is just a language. So when somebody says, we don't want software patents, I'm not sure, I mean, do they, do they prefer we write Shakespearean sonnets? I mean, that, that, that you know, it, it's, Shakespearean sonnets are beautiful. MIT's a great school, but Shakespearean sonnets, they, they, don't, they don't work there. Horacio, you had one comment you wanted to make. Is this on? The, the question um, on the, uh, on the Im implications of eBay, I think, there, I think there has been, I mean, it's, early, it's too early to tell, but I think there, there has been somewhat of an impact as a result of that. To be clear, eBay didn't do away with injunctions. It did away with the per se uh, rule of injunctions in patent cases. So injunctions are still there. And in fact, in cases, if you look at the cases that have been decided post eBay, I think you're going to see that in most cases that did not involve a non-practicing entity, something what we would call a troll, actually injunctions have tended to continue to be issued. Um, so I think one has to monitor the case there. The reason why I think that wouldn't necessarily translate into a reduction of the number of lawsuits and why it would be wrong to try to determine the effectiveness of eBay in, in terms of reduction in, in overall litigation is that there's a second set of issues that drive litigation, that drive troll litigation. Uh, if injunctions were a, um, you know, a gun that someone could put to your head and get you uh, to agree to terms that you wouldn't have agreed otherwise, you still have the lottery ticket phenomenon in the litigation in that the, the way that damages get, get awarded it's really, is really not very rational. And you have situations, particularly in the East, East, Eastern District of Texas, but in other places too, where very complicated cases, both from a patent law perspective and from a technology perspective, are submitted to the jury, essentially without any kind of guidance or instructions on the part of the judge. And then you know, you're asking people with, you know, um, I don't want to be pejorative, but people without a very advanced level of education that form part of those juries to make very difficult decisions without any kind of guidance. So um, I, I think that that's a second phenomenon that has not been addressed by the Supreme Court. It's unclear if they're going to be addressing, and it's very much in the heart of the patent reform discussions that are happening in D.C. with companies all over the, all over the place in terms of what to do with damages and the reasonable royalty calculation. 